Lovely. Hi, Charlotte. Nice to meet you, by the way. I'm Georgia. Oh, sorry, I didn't get around the table. No, that's all right. Just ignore your co-host. He's <laughs> too used to doing this on his own. Yeah, exactly. Oh, flies alone. Right, <laughs> shall we do the uh, sound checks? If you're ready, then we can... Uh, you're very loud. Are we very loud? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry, our ears are bleeding. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the studio. It's lovely of you to join us in your ears to have another chat. So today we have multiple guests in multiple locations. We're hybriding left, right and centre. So let's kick off with intros. Uh, I'm Ian Jindal, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. And today we have new co-host, Georgia. Tell everyone who you are. Hello. I'm honoured. <laughs> I am Georgia Scott and I am the Head of Solutions Marketing for Adobe. Lovely. I like the emphasis on head of. Head of. <laughs> Good. Well, we expect solutions. In charge. Great. And, <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, and we feel that now. So um, not intimidated at all. Also in the studio, we have Janice. Janice, tell our listener who you are. Hi, I'm Janice Thomas. I am the e-commerce and marketing director at Look Fabulous Forever. Now, that is a promise, if ever I heard. I and, and we'll learn more about that. And joining us and leading in the fashion stakes, we have Charlotte. Charlotte, tell everyone who you are. Hi, I'm Charlotte Fairburn. I'm Chief Operating Officer of My Wardrobe HQ. We are the UK's leading destination for fashion re-commerce. Now, leading destination. So let's pick up on that. So anyway, Charlotte, welcome. Uh, joining us over the airwaves. That's a big claim leading destination. So tell us a bit more about my wardrobe, why the HQ and why leading? So my wardrobe HQ was founded, I think three or four years ago now by Sasha Newell and Tina Lake, who are our fabulous co-founders and CEOs. And really they had a vision of circularity in the luxury fashion space. And we are the leading destination because we have by far and away the most brands represented. We have over 800 brands represented on the site. But really, whilst the site itself is a B2C kind of storefront, if you like, we actually offer more B2B services. So we have over 150 brands who work with us directly and they are able to pilot and scale their re-commerce offerings through My Wardrobe HQ. So they will use us for resale, rental, subscription, buyback, any kind of blend of those. And they'll try us out on My Wardrobe HQ before they basically graduate onto a white label of their own. Um, and we then power all of the tech and all the operations behind it. And then eventually we'll get to a single integrated checkout, which we're ready to do, but no one else is ready yet. <laughs> right, so you've covered off, uh, in terms of buzzword bingo, <laughs> you've, hit, you've hit everything there that we're She's talking won. about. It's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> so um, maybe let's try and pick those apart, <clears throat> because as I was looking at the site in advance of today, something very obvious belatedly dawned on me, which is we've optimised retail for 60 years to punt things out in one direction. Yeah. And then reluctantly, we accept some of them back, but they either end up in landfill or stuck in a corner of a DC somewhere. The whole business model is punt it out, make sure the margin's there, do it again next season. Hope it never comes back. Hope it never comes back. But you're, if you like, in, in the firing line, because you just picked all of the hard things, rental, subscription, you know, returns. So... Just, just tell me how you go from a highly optimised, I can copy what other people do, to a no obvious pattern, it's really, really hard and no one wants to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. So how did it start out that you took on all of these hard things in one go? It really started out because no one else was doing it. Mm -hmm. And a brand, when, when they come to look at re-commerce, they, they almost, they don't know what they don't know. They don't really understand all the different customer behaviors. They don't understand how their stock is going to perform. They know that they kind of don't like seeing their stock crumpled on bedroom floors in badly lit photography on peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces. They know they don't really like that, but they don't really know what else it could be. And so we kind of set out to say, well, look, why don't we do all of it? 
And it looks very difficult operationally, but actually once you crack the code, it's it's not too difficult. And particularly once you scale and you get the right partners in place, it's, it's remarkably easy. Um, but I won't tell you what the secret sauce is. I was going to say, <laughs> this would be like the shortest I, I, podcast I was about ever. To say, you've made it sound incredibly simple, but uh, <laughs> the scaling part is usually the part where others fall down. I think this is Charlotte's uh, sales thing where she says about it. Everyone goes, oh my God, that's so hard. Then she goes, yeah, but it's so easy for me. And they go, you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're um, we're very lucky to be partnered with some really fantastic people in the UK who've really helped us to scale. And I think, like I said, once you kind of crack that code mm. and you really understand how customers behave, also you understand what fraud looks like, what, mm. what bad behavior looks like, and you can start to sort of weed that out, mm. then it becomes, okay, we're on to something here. And once you've started to get into that repeatable pattern of goodness, you know, good comes to good in a certain way. And so you just rinse and repeat. Now, I'm not sure whether it's my background that makes me cynical or whether I'm just cursed with that anyway. But when I last had a job many years ago, the inventiveness, the sheer inventiveness and evil of customers returning things, you know, is legendary. Mm. You know, Christmas trees that get returned on January the 12th. Oh. Um, you know, the sort of before rental was available, they would just buy things from us, have their Christmas party, and then send mm. it back with cigarette burns and lipstick on. So customers are pretty good at finding, should we say, optimal routes <laughs> to, yes. to do things. But you're talking about this cycle of goodness which I think is a very lovely sentiment. What's that based on? What is the cycle of goodness? I think if you know that people are going to wear something and send it back, then you just have to make that really easy for them. Mm. So you mm. you make a, a rental price that's attractive and you make it really easy for them to just be able to stick it in the post. Like we, we work with DPD. We also have just partnered with a same day courier in London called Quiver who can send out, you know, within two hours. They also have like a try and, and return service. So you could order five things, just return four of them, like right then and there. And I think the more that you can make that process quite slick and easy rather than putting in place barriers, then customers won't try to find ways around it. So you just yeah. have to play into the fact that they want to rent this stuff. So if you know that they want to rent it, just make that really seamless. I have actually been a customer. And? I can tell you it's very easy. Yeah? Yeah. It's fabulous. So? for for I, I only used it for a wedding. And I feel that, I mean, I'd be interested in your take on this, Charlotte, but I feel like up until recently, that's kind of where the rental market has been. Special events, right? Very much for for races or weddings and things. Where actually now is where I'm starting to feel the change into actually just day to day. Yeah. Why invest in this investment piece for your wardrobe when you're only going to wear it twice to an important meeting or to present at something? You know. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested in how you're you're seeing that shift. Yeah, I mean, weddings obviously are a massive season for us. I mean. We're very fortunate that Carrie Johnson rented her wedding dress from us. That was, that was quite a big moment just, for us. A just a little one. Just a little one. <laughs> and no, it was it was fab. And and there are these certain sort of big events through through the calendar year where you know we can sort of put a focus. But actually, where we're now sort of expanding as much more into everyday mm -hmm. subscriptions. So moving away from, well, not moving away from, but kind of almost like. Once you've tried pay-as-you-go rental and you've had the nice dress for the nice event or you've had the nice bag for the nice event, what we now have is like we've launched a subscription model since the back end of last year where effectively you can start to build out a rotating wardrobe. So you can rent two or four items and you can basically pass back once you're done with something at the end of the month or you could keep it on and then you're just rotating things, but they're things that you want. So it's not just a box of any old stuff that we send to you. It's actually, you have a wish list and, and these things are coming back to you and, and then you can trade them back and forwards and it just becomes much more playful, much mm. more experimental. Like you could try things that maybe you never would have bought, you know, mm. which are heavily patterned, you know, seasonal colours, things like that. So it just gives you that option to just play around a bit which is I think why historically we've all bought 10 things and then returned eight because actually we wanted to try things out 
Yes, and it's interesting you say play. There was some research by ThreadUp in the US uh, that I read the other day, and it was saying how for younger people, they find the looking for second hand is half the fun. Mm. And then the bragging about, I had to really look for this and I finally dug it out, X, Y, Z, is the other half, as much as the ownership or temporary ownership of a product. So I think you're definitely playing into that notion of, instead of it being simple, click, buy, get, you're making the fun part fun and involved, but then you're taking away the admin pains around delivery and return. So it's it's quite an interesting inflection on where to make things interesting and where the so-called friction is actually part of the enjoyment of it. Exactly. I think the more that you can make it, you know, why not dress up? It's a Tuesday, any excuse, you know, and, and we're trying to sort of make it more about everyday luxury and sort of more of that fun every day rather than it has to be a big event. I think we've all been in athleisure in our living rooms, working at our kitchen tables for most of COVID. And actually now that we're all now coming back out, it gives you that option to actually play about with it, get dressed up, have a nice time. You don't actually need a special occasion. Yes, very good. And I'm pleased at this point that uh, it's not a video recording, because otherwise you'd see smartly dressed people and me, which uh, undermines the market. You mentioned everyday luxury. And I mean, luxury is a problematic term because everyone wants to be accessible, luxury, modern luxury. It's, It's becoming slightly meaningless. But generally speaking, with the luxury products, it's a higher price point they're more tightly controlled. So you can assess when they come back in, whether they're still okay, whether it's the real thing. But it sounds like you're expanding and expanding. And so when the poor person sat at my ward of HQ gets a parcel back, do they have to be an expert in 400 brands, 20 different product categories, 97 different types of potential stains and which ones can or can't be removed. It seems like an enormous job to give someone versus I just do handbags all day and I, I'm fine with that. This seems like a real intractable problem. So there are a number of different ways around it and I'm not going to bore you to tears with all of them. There's kind of the, the first line of defense, which is we RFID tag a lot of our products. So there's oh. a very simple one for one is it the same product because it's got the same tag in it? So that becomes much easier for us to actually know that it's the same thing or not. And we do assess if there's damage. We do assess if there are stains. You know, the odds of somebody, you know, spilling, I don't know, something incredibly rare, like battery acid down something rather than red wine. <laughs> I mean, it, you're going to see the same 10 things again right. and again. What are um, Do you want to share with us? Yeah, out of interest, I, w- I want to know. <laughs> I mean, if, if weddings, if weddings. Things, <laughs> things like foundation stains around the top of like shirts mm. and things like that. And most reprocessing facilities, even like in your standard return centers, like not even thinking about us, but thinking about just standard high street returns and how they have to manage through cleaning tunnels. You know, these are all... Yeah. you know, very industry standard things to deal with. You know, like it, I don't think that it's anything overly special. Now, there are definitely, obviously, more heavily embellished garments. We've got some wonderful things that are covered in feathers at the moment, <laughs> where it's like, you know, you're going to have to accept that a few feathers are going to come off. Right. But then you as a customer also have to accept that if you're renting something, that it's not going to be necessarily absolutely perfect now you're getting access to a garment that should be 500 pounds for the best part of maybe 50 so Mm. there's there's kind of a bit of a an expectations trade yeah yeah so you Mm. georgia mentioned classic yes a while ago yes so if you're in apparel then every year you say this classic white blouse mm-hmm. is a wardrobe staple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an investment piece. It yes. lasts forever. And so you double the price as an investment piece. Mm-hmm. And then you immediately launch another one next year and tell them that's the investment yes. piece. So how do we broker this idea of you have more and more products that are higher end, but may then go in and out of fashion more quickly, 
So are you left with racks full of semi-feathered last year's ostrich wear that has gone out of fashion, but you're left holding uh, what's left of it? How, how do you manage that, that balance between current stock, classic, quote-unquote, stock and obsolescence? It's a great question and one that we are working with several brands to, to kind of work through. <laughs> Um, right. fundamentally there's kind of a, there's a, so what about sustainability in fashion, which is how do we close this loop? And ultimately the loop that we're trying to close is overproduction. Yeah. And actually if you as a brand can make a single garment more profitable because you're getting a slice of its sale, it's resale, it's rentals, every time it moves, oh. then actually the, so what is you don't need to produce as much or you could source more sustainably and not produce yeah. as much. And so we're trying to sort of bring it all back around to the so what. I'd say that we're kind of like three quarters of the way around that loop at the moment. We haven't yet gotten to that point where a brand has seen so much profitability through us that they can go, actually, now I produced a thousand of this thing last year and now I only need to produce 800. Like we're, we're still getting to that point, mm. but we're a lot closer than we were three years ago. That's a very good point. Yeah. And I would imagine, obviously, then, as people can purchase items, right? And so I would imagine when something comes towards the end of its life cycle, there's opportunity for purchasing at, at discounted rates and things like that? Or is it Absolutely. not? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I don't think that we need to see purchase as being necessarily an exit route. I think, you know, something could be sold, could be resold, could be rented yeah. times, could then be sold Can live again. forever. <laughs> exactly. And actually... Do you get more wares per garment? Does the garment as a brand asset therefore live for longer? Therefore, do you get more bang for your buck? And so it's it's more about how do we give all of that data back to the brand so yeah. the brand can make better decisions? Better decisions is probably a loaded term. <laughs> <laughs> and actually on that, I think because everything you've said, and obviously this is probably, I can't help but think this way, how are you trying to use technology, I guess, because everything that you're doing in terms of balancing off, um, you know, rentals v subscriptions v yeah. the data of returns and what's it going to look like from incoming and outgoing and then information you're sharing back in the business, obviously, is only going to be so good as what you've got in place. So how do you kind of balance that with, with your technology v? Yeah, so... My background is actually all tech and digital strategy. <laughs> I did see a few. I did see a few good names on there, so I knew you'd have a good answer. <laughs> so our tech is entirely in-house built. It's yeah. a proprietary platform precisely for this purpose. For what you need, exactly. And so we've been building up ultimately a data warehouse of UK re-commerce movements since we started. Amazing. And so any time that we go to a brand, even if that brand isn't yet directly listed with us, we can show them how their stock is already performing through the site. We can say, you know, on average, you're getting, you know, six to eight rental movements in a season. Yeah. You know, these are the things that perform better. We can start to compare them to their peers and say, did you know if you do this at this particular season, then you're going to get X results. You know, it performs better for this demographic than that demographic. A lot of this is stuff they already know, but there's still a perception that standard retail is different to re-commerce. It's just different modes of interacting with the same product. Yeah. It sounds to me like you've got three businesses. I'm trying to work out which one is the prime one for you. So there's the data business, which some people would be satisfied and said, look, we can sell you the data or help you make better decisions. Then you've got your direct business and then you've got the white label business. So are these all three going to march into the sunset holding hands smiling happily or are you going to sacrifice one of them as you know just a starter thing you know wh where does the business go how should I look at this if I want to put it into a category and then move away happily thinking my OCD is satisfied <laughs> I like to describe the business as an iceberg where you've got the b2c business is what everybody sees the b2b business is ultimately what is powering it because we take the stock from the brands and that's kind of what powers the B2C business and the data is kind of what's brewing underneath to a certain extent. Until we've got sufficient 
industry interest and buy-in for that data it's it's more that it's it's sitting there and it's maturing like a fine wine <laughs> so i don't know that it's ready yet but it's going to be ready when the industry is ready okay and so i would see it much more of that sort of overall iceberg and i don't think you can have any one of them without the other and that's where i feel like we're quite well placed that's good. I mean, it sort of wrecked my into the sunset analogy. You know, how <laughs> we have a data lake maturing. Yeah. And, uh, okay, I think I'll I'll move on. I've been comprehensively <laughs> out metaphored there. Um, now, Charlotte, a cursory glance of your impressive CV, which is what our listener is doing now as they click the program notes and look at your LinkedIn profile, they'll go scrolly, scrolly. Heard of those? Oh. There was a thing called mywardrobe.com <laughs> back in 2014. Is this something that came like uh, Ertzi, the Iceman, out of the ice? Or is it a continuation? Uh, is there a link or just accidental naming? You know, uh, it's actually where I first met Sasha. Mm. And Sasha and I um, were both brought into that business. It was bought out of administration. And we were brought in to kind of reverse its fortunes. We didn't. <laughs> we, we tried very hard. Um, but I'd say many seven o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock at night impassioned conversations on the streets of Poland Street, where we were at the time, thinking there must be a better way of doing this. Because, you know, the original My Wardrobe was buying, I would say, sort of contemporary luxury clothing now they were buying it they weren't mm. taking it on consignment it wasn't sale or return they were buying it and if you're buying the stock you're already committed to the stock maybe yeah. nine 12 months out yes. so the whole thing's just a gamble and, <laughs> she and says so, describing retail as a whole <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you you just don't know how things are going to perform and i think there was also a very different view of who our customer was who they thought it was versus who it actually was. Mm -hmm. And so between those two dynamics and this kind of buying for a customer we didn't really have, it just wasn't really going anywhere. But Sasha and I would spend many late nights going, there's got to be a better way. It's something that we've kind of turned over and over every time that we've sat and had drinks ever since. Mm -hmm. And so when my wardrobe HQ was born, I think HQ was meant to be higher quality as an <laughs> HIRE higher oh, oh that's pun yeah. upon pun that's impressive yeah we're very punny yes. <laughs> now um having been out metaphored and out punned um <laughs> i have to ask when you're talking you're so relaxed and persuasive that i'm thinking i'm starting to believe this is all very easy things so let me just ask you, when you moved on from the Tesco's, the M&S's, uh, et cetera, and you thought, let's let's roll the dice again on the HQ, what was the thing you found, obviously you've solved it by now, but what was the thing you found most difficult in transitioning from the traditional retail models to the new one? What was the problem that you obviously now solved, but was a challenge to you in solving? I think the hardest thing is the infrastructure that you need for this operationally, mm. it just isn't there. Mm. Like it's it's there in very small areas. And, and when you think about it and you look at like a standard warehouse or a standard operations provider, you know, we pretty much just do pick, pack, dispatch, returns management, summary processing. And you think, well, surely every warehouse does that. Surely every operations provider mm. does that. But as soon as you say that it's rental, Everyone sort of goes, but that's something completely different. It's like, well, not really. <laughs> We're just sending something around a few times. It's, mm -hmm. it's not really that hard. But there's still this industry perception that they are two completely separate things. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's been trying to find those partners who can help us to scale, who can sort of see that this is really just two sides of the same coin, rather than seeing it as a completely separate business model that must therefore operate mm. differently. And I think the fact that we've got the technology and the fact that we can explain it and the fact that we've been doing it hands-on ourselves for, for you know, the last few years, yeah. it, it helps people to build that confidence. But I think 
when you first talk to people about rental subscription, all these different models, they just think, well, it operates differently. Therefore, I don't want to confuse my current operation with that. Like, it, it's just, I, I need to set it somewhere else. Yeah. And actually, what? why would you? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting point. I also think that, you know, we come from an era where fixing and optimizing your supply chain was a competitive advantage, whereas now flexing is that advantage. It's, it's quite hard moving from one to another. Uh, okay, so now you've done that, you're thinking, oh, I'll be out of this digital studio in no time. I can't wait to dot, dot, dot. So what's next for you in terms of, you know, the next business challenge? Are you just going to add more clients, grow a bit more, same as before? Or do you have any cunning new projects that you can't wait to get stuck into? We are having some very interesting conversations about international expansion. Um, I would say, the as much as I say that the UK has been hard to find that operational scale, as soon as you go outside of the UK, it's 20 times harder. Yeah. Because actually, we as a, I think we're, the UK is like the fourth largest re-economy in the world. And even then, like when you consider that... The, I have the, not heard that term. No. Or the number so four. Did, did you make that up? Yes, I is, like it. Is that a real fact or a factoid? It no, sounds no, no. credible. It's a fact fact. It's a, I got it on Statista. <laughs> oh, it must be a fact. <laughs> <laughs> we love Statista, by the way. Uh, especially if Statista's lawyers are listening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you remember which the biggest ones were? I'm assuming the US is. Uh, the US. But, but even then, I think that's by revenue. Right. And yeah. So that's to be expected. I think... Germany does quite well, oh, and bestimmt. maybe France. Okay, well, that's fine. You're We're in good company. I can tell you it won't be Australia. Okay. No. Because from a fulfilment perspective, which I don't know where your expansions are, it is a nightmare. Right. Because yeah. it's so big. True. So, Without as many post boxes. I, honestly, <laughs> yeah, in the, in the eight years that I lived there, never did I find anywhere that could do same-day delivery. Right. Actually, from Perth to Sydney, it would take more than Yes, but no, it's, I mean, it is interesting. I agree with you. Outside of the UK, actually, I can imagine the challenges kind of tenfold from an yeah. operational perspective. So which country is looking attractive to you then? We are very interested in the Middle East. Mm. Mm. Um, so. And is that because of the attractiveness of the luxury product of the, the affluent customer there or because the conurbations tend to be sort of city-states good logistics would support round-trip uh, deliveries? So it would be very, very easy to set up effectively a rental capsule that is local to a particular area, and then it's very fast to dispatch and move from there. Yeah. So rental, you, you can't do cross-border rental. Like uh, You could maybe send someone on holiday with something for a month if you wanted to, but trying to fulfill a rental order into the States or something from the UK would just be... A nightmare and I don't even want to think about the tax implications of it so it's just far easier just to consign a package of stock to a particular yeah. location and then base it from there the Nordics in the same way and that you can put obviously a capsule in one place and then fulfill up to probably you know you could put it in Denmark and could fulfill very easily into Sweden and Norway from there as well mm. but again it's it's the it's the economy of scale so I can find a tiny dry cleaner who would, you know, want to, to set this thing up. But can I find somebody who wants to take, you know, two to 5,000 units of stock? No, I can't. <laughs> Maybe after this podcast. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's quite interesting what the implications for the broader economy, because in the same way that Deliveroo brought about dark kitchens, so yeah. your favourite restaurant all of a sudden you know, buys a shipping container and sets up a delivery-only kitchen next to a motorbike parking zone, uh, we could have someone who shall be nameless writing in saying, I've just set up mm -hmm. a 5,000 garment dry cleaning container, which we can drive to wherever you want. That's it, mobile dry cleaning units. You heard it here first. <laughs> and maybe first and for the last time. And for the last time. <laughs> well, Charlotte, I'm sorry to have um, rained on your brilliant ideas with my less than well-appreciated dry cleaning business. It was lovely chatting. Thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to 
seeing the developers, especially the international ones, because they can't be much of a hotter space right now than the e-commerce one. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, how do we segue from e-commerce to makeup? We don't. We just go no clutch. We just slam we straight just into it. Move straight in, and uh, we say it's the same. The thing that nobody else was doing that is, is the true. common theme. Oh, That's the theme. Hey, let's edit this to pretend I thought that, of that you were link. that quick. That was that quick, Janice. Thank you so much for that. So, the thing that no one thought of doing. Tell us what is that thing, and how did you think of it? Yes. Yeah, so, essentially, mainstream beauty brands and retailers are not interested in older customers. Seriously, I was having a conversation recently with a big beauty brand who will remain nameless, who were discussing, they'd had this internal conversation about targeting an older customer who apparently someone had described as over 25. <laughs> so the, the attitude of the mainstream beauty industry, um, even you look at really diverse brands like Rihanna's Fenty Beauty, you see this incredible spectrum of shades that they cater to. Mm. But still, you look at the Instagram, you look at the website, all of those things, and you will rarely see anyone over 30. So our founder, Trisha Cusden, 10 years ago, she was 65. And she recognised that she needed different products as she got older, particularly after she'd been through menopause. And she went looking for products that would work better for her. And they just weren't out there. And Trisha is the kind of person who's not going to take that lying down. Mm -hmm. So she literally said, right, I'm going to work out how to formulate these products, how to manufacture them, how to distribute them, how to set up a website, everything. And, you know, the business has gone from strength to strength in the last 10 years. Trish is now 75 and still heavily involved in the business day to day. Um, it's an incredible story. Now, for those who are ignorant of the requirements here, when you say that there isn't makeup for older people, my first thought was shades or styles, because I know nothing. <laughs> yeah. But earlier, you explained to us what some of those considerations are for the older face, by which you mean three times older than <laughs> normal older. <laughs> but just, just for our listener, let, let's go through some of the things that are unique requirements for the older person. So every product is designed for what are the specific <laughs> needs of an older woman from this product. So... For example, if you buy a blusher, traditionally you'd either buy a powder blush or a cream blush. Now, if you wear a powder blush as you get older, it sits in the fine lines on your skin and it isn't very flattering. But if you wear a cream blush, older skin is very absorbent. So you put it on in the morning, you look amazing, but by lunchtime it's completely disappeared. It's like you never wore it at all. Mm. So our blusher is designed so it goes on as a cream, so it goes on smoothly, but then it dries as a powder so it sits on your skin and the colour stays vibrant all day. So every product is designed for what is the specific thing that an older woman needs from this particular product. Mm. And that's why, Tricia, going back not just to how do I design these things, but how do I actually formulate them with the specific problem that I am trying to solve? Right. So I've never met Tricia, I don't know her. But all <laughs> of a sudden, I've gone from thinking indomitable person who knows what she wants to, oh, she's now a chemist, a material <laughs> scientist, and she's just invented this magical sprinkle dust that morphs during the day. How? Just, just talk me through the going from... I know this doesn't work, to, oh, I've invented something that does. She literally Googled, you know, kind of how to manufacture makeup and met with the particular makeup manufacturing partner that we still work with today and actually sat down with them and said, look, this is what I'm looking for. And they helped her formulate a product that was going to do what she needed. Mm. Now... Uh, two questions are begged from that. Let's do the first one, which is, if they knew how to do it already, why hadn't they? <laughs> because nobody thought of it. Because if you think about 
the typical beauty industry company, you know, I've worked at Birchbox, you know, I've worked in those environments. It's stuffed full of people who are probably aged between 20 and 35. And so therefore desperately need blemish covers for their perfect skin. This is the thing. They're not, because those people are not in the organisation, it is too easy for all of us, no matter where we work, to look around our organisation and assume my customer looks like me. My customer Mm. has the same needs as I have. And when we do not include a wider spectrum of people in the discussion, we are therefore excluding them and we are not manufacturing products that meet their needs because we're not even thinking about their needs. So let's jump to the their needs. I'm always worried about using the word their because it Mm. seems like you're putting people in a box. But I can remember I was doing some work with a a large department store some years ago and I was talking to my mum and her comment was, oh, I don't shop there because they treat me like an old lady. To which I said, look, ma'am, I don't want to be harsh, but I think you're 71. Yes, but at heart, I'm not. And so in her mind, she rejected being a a boomer child of the 60s, wasn't interested in being a quote-unquote stereotypical old person. So on the one hand, you have this idea that, that they aren't represented and aren't addressed, but equally when you do try and address them, they don't be addressed as, hello, old people, we've come to talk to you loudly. So how do you market at them without seeming either patronising or irrelevant? Well, I think the biggest thing is stereotyping. Mm. And that's at the heart of that. Oh, they don't treat, they treat me like an older person. They they make assumptions mm. about me. So, for example, if you think of a woman in her 70s, most people will think of a grey-haired granny in a grey cardigan. This is the generation of the Beatles and Mary Quant and the miniskirt. Mm. They are not the stereotype. They are not. When we are surrounded by media that forces us into these stereotypes that you very rarely see older people represented in advertising on websites, those kind of things. And when you do rarely see them, they're stereotyped as frail or forgetful or the zany older person. (laughs) And we were very, very lucky that we were founded by Trisha, who is our customer herself, that 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 was kind of the the fundamental piece. But for us, we listen to our customers every day. We are steeped in customer data. We never make assumptions about our customers. We will always ask them. So, for example, we had a conversation a couple of years ago. Oh, should be doing buy now, pay later. Well, let's ask our customers. Mm. Do they use buy now, pay later? Which services have they they heard of? You know, would they be interested in it? You know, let's not make the assumption. Let's ask the question. Mm. What was the answer, by the way? Yeah. Um, no, they really weren't very Cash interested in them. <laughs> um, you know, I think they're, they're fine with, I think they shop online more than we give them credit for. But then generally because most of our customer base are retired they know their financial situation and they're making decisions based on that mm, and do you find you get i mean it, it shows a very engaged customer base to to be getting those answers because i think it's one thing knowing to ask it it's another thing getting a response but you find that you do get active responses when you go to them to find out what they want yeah and part of that is the active feedback mm. loop that We ask them questions and they say, yes, I would like this particular product and I would like it to have these characteristics and then we develop it. And so they see that the things that they tell us that we listen and then we respond. Mm. So, yeah, if they did feel like, well, what are you going to do with this data? You know, you don't care, then fair enough, they wouldn't bother. But because they see that we do care and something happens as a result of there so we send out i mean amongst other things but we have a big quarterly survey and in the email for every quarterly survey we say hey we're just about to launch this new product that you told us about in the last survey that you were interested in we always as part of that process tell them this is a thing that we are doing now because you told us in a previous survey this is what you wanted yeah now i've got this image of the happy 65-year-old reaching out, being embraced by 
other 65 year olds plus or minus a few years and they age beautifully together looking fabulous but what happens to the 35 year olds or topping up your pipeline of 65 year olds or 50 year olds so how are you picking up new advocates new people to benefit from your approach rather than just all aging together well for a start it's a huge market that we've only just scratched the surface of that there are something like 40 percent of the population is over 50 and women over 50 are going to be the fastest growing demographic in the next 10 years so we've got a long way to go just within the uk to kind of mm. even reach our target audience but we're really conscious that you know trisha was 65 when she started the brand 10 years ago so she's 75 now so the women who look like her look 75 more than 65. So one of the things that we've been particularly conscious of since we've come out of the pandemic is having a broader spectrum of women in our advertising and in our content, or all of those things, though that a wider spectrum of women do feel like they can identify with us. And it's not just yeah. your treasure or your, or your not. And I assume it's not just about age because you know looking at your website you've got pictures from users i find it very hard to tell how old people are i'm at that age where policemen look young and so on so you know it, it can be quite difficult but it's not just an age thing is it it must be people who have uh, different skin requirements or different usage requirements Absolutely. I was talking to someone um, in her 20s the other day and I was telling her about how our eyebrow product works. And it's specifically designed because particularly our target demographic tended to overpluck her eyebrows in her youth <laughs> because that was the fashion. So many of them don't have any eyebrows. So we have a product that literally is designed so you can draw on individual eyebrow hairs. And so I was talking to this woman and she's like, oh, wow, I've got a little patch here. It would just be really useful to be able to do that. I'd love to try your product. So it comes back to what's the specific need that we cater to. There may be an audience of women who are not older. Perhaps they've had you know, chemotherapy and might, might have impacted their eyebrows. There may be another demographic, but that is not our core audience. But then we always talk about benefits and why should you buy our, our eyebrow product? So if you do happen to see our ad and you're not our target audience, you may still engage with it because it may still be a product you need and want. I'm already getting the blusher. I was sold at the intro. Really? Yes. But I mean, I'm... I mean, you had I was, no, but I was about to say, don't you dare comment on what you think my age is. But regardless, that's a... But I see what you mean on the need. Like, I was like, that's my exact issue with all blushers. Mm. Well, look, I'm just taking notes. That's all I'm doing. I'm in listening mode and learning mode. I'm just desperately trying not to turn this into a beauty podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we failed it. We've done beauty luxury. But um, Charlotte, can we just jump back to you a second? Because we're talking about age groups. And we, we didn't mention this at all when we talked about you because it was about luxury primarily. But um, do you have within your customers a predominant age group or not and um, if so is that even a relevant question it's a really relevant question i think because there seems to be an idea that rental is a very gen z focused activity and mm. it's for people who are trying to uh, get into brands that they kind of aspirationally would love to buy into but they're just renting it to try it because they can't afford it or something and actually we don't see that at all our user base splits down almost perfectly a third, a third, a third between Gen Z's, Millennials and Gen X, wow. which I think also goes to show that it's kind of representative of the really broad span of brands that we have. Yeah. But it's it's kind of, it's something for everyone. And and when you sort of do become more of that department store, if you like, you, you are going to be a bit yes. of something for everyone. It's interesting listening to you speak because we do have quite a lot of adjacency with beauty because we're, we're looking into beauty tech and like wellness tech because we can offer rental on anything you know it doesn't have to be fashion and so there are all sorts of wonderful led face masks and, and hair masks that like help your hair to grow and, and all of these wonderful things that might cost thousands 
but we could probably rent it for let's say 50 to 100 pounds so it gives people more of that sort of accessible way in so definitely there's there are adjacencies between the two excellent well we seem to be doing lots of biz dev today um (laughs) so janice when we were talking with charlotte earlier on she was talking about the fact that rental doesn't go cross border um tell me about your customer is she global mainly uk where's the business of located the center of gravity so we are you know a uk based business so uk is our biggest market then followed by the us and australia and i think for the time being we're co- very focused on that kind of english language market because i think when you move beyond that kind of culturally they fit quite well together and i think you're going to find potentially if we move into not just the language issues but potentially cultural issues and kind of other things that women may find face slightly different issues that we don't claim to be expert in. Yeah. Mm. So I think you first um, came on our radar when you were at Birchbox. So there's a beauty continuity there. But if I described your career to date as varied, <laughs> then I think that would be a fair term. So do you want to draw us a line through your experiences and how you ended up at Look Fabulous Forever, what was that path? I actually spent most of my career in media and entertainment. That kind of that was very much uh, whether it was magazine subscriptions or TV subscriptions or building one of the first streaming services in the UK, even before Netflix were doing streaming. Lots and lots of different things, but very focused in media and entertainment. And that kind of gave me two specific skill sets. One is the technology piece, particularly um, around Mm. developing a streaming platform, really understanding how do you, from a marketing perspective, work and understand kind of UX and kind of those those kind of things. But also the crucial thing was subscription, that, you know, whether it's TV subscription or magazine subscription or, you know, pay-by-transaction films and kind of all of those things, that when I... I was actually a big fan of Birchbox before I joined them and they realised they could teach someone with that very, very strong subscriptions business background about the specifics of the beauty industry and that customer, but they had struggled to find someone who really understood the subscription business, particularly in that digital marketing Mm. space. How Mm. do you acquire a customer and things like potentially your acquisition method and journey to purchase can significantly influence the length of time that customer spends with you and therefore ultimately their profitability. So one acquisition is not necessarily the same as another. Trying to explain some of that from a more traditional e-commerce digital marketing background. Because they look at the acquisition funnel to conversion rather than the the lifetime, lifetime value that's yeah. actually real lifetime rather than just a period. I can of see Charlotte uh, nodding. <laughs> <laughs> Similar challenges, no doubt. Indeed. So because of that, I went to work for, for Birchbox and then I've remained within e-commerce mm. since then. Um, and I think now as well, we recognise that actually the years that I spent in selling pay-by-transaction films that's e-commerce it's yeah can we take one moment because i just we have to mention it on who that that was for please <laughs> well to be fair paper transaction films wasn't the what who you're thinking of oh, but yes cute. i um i did spend two years at playboy and that is um i organized hugh hefner's 80th birthday party it is my fun fact about me we had to get that in well, and this I, is where i'm wishing i had one of those <laughs> you know to bunch yes. things because we've got round to Hugh Hefner's 80th. Hugh yeah. Hefner's 80th. And I think for me, that was a really transformational and crucial career choice for me that I had been really a direct marketing specialist. And I recognised that if I was going to advance my career, I needed to have that experience in above the line TV advertising, PR, kind of all of those mm. things. And because I came from this very strong subscriptions discipline playboy were willing to take a chance on me in the way that actually other brands weren't necessarily 
And then that enabled me to go to these very kind of senior roles as a result of that, rather than being stuck in that direct niche. It's interesting because, you know, direct was temporarily looked down upon as people moved to retail. But in the same way that Charlotte given us the re-commerce and every buzzword in terms of the sustainability, cyclical, etc. The other big hot topic, of course, at the moment is that one of subscriptions. And I think, are you speaking at our subscriptions event, Subex, or maybe you are, maybe you haven't, maybe you don't know you are yet. Anyway. <laughs> are you uh, asking? <laughs> uh, I think I've already asked. The fact that she's looking blank at me says she hasn't yet accepted. But anyway, I think it's May the 17th or May the 18th. I will put it in the programme. Subtle plug. Thank you. Subscription X, uh, another sort of there. Now, Having quizzed you, you're obviously thinking, I can't wait to get out of here. Um, when you leave, we know Charles going international. Not that we're competitive or anything. What are you going to do? What's your next big thing? So right now, I'm replacing the entire front end of my website. So oh, um, just oh, that. small just job. <laughs> that, yeah, I think I... Is that I, a makeover? I liken it a little bit to a handbag where you keep like putting things in <laughs> and we've just reached the point where it's like no 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 let's strip it back and start again from from scratch um that i think from a we have a very very loyal existing base and i think they're willing to wait for our website to load but i think potentially it hurts us from a new customer acquisition perspective that it does take time so i think that speed piece is kind of the motivation yeah. behind it and hopefully we are expanding our distribution in a way that i cannot talk about right now oh, and, um, yeah also uh, some very interesting things happening on the manufacturing side that i Great. can't quite talk about yet I'm... well look, hopefully if we manage to sort out he's speaking at our event <laughs> then he can tell us in may <laughs> and if not we we'll just have to get you back into the studio Janice. uh well look our time has come to an end if or I'm... there or thereabouts so i'm sad i know we'll do another one okay soon. with Equally lovely guest, but right now it's a massive thank you to Charlotte for beaming in over the digital airways. Charlotte, thank you for joining us. And Janice, thank you so much. Uh, and from both of you, we've learned some new vocabulary and some new facts, which we're now going to skip off and pretend we knew all along. So thank you for enriching us, both of you. And from the studio, Georgia, thank you very much. Thank you. And from everyone, it's a goodbye and happy trading. Sometimes. I'm legally prohibited from having any thoughts on fashion. On fashion, I'm very mainly interested in the thumb holes in your jumper that are not being used as thumb holes. They're thumb support. Thumb support. <laughs> so while I'm texting, <laughs> my sleeve can support my thumb. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> on that note, yeah. I, th- I think we should go now. Yeah. I feel picked upon. <laughs>